0: Be seated. Thanks, Brianne. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 21, if you don't have it opened already. And uh, just uh, by way of reminder, um, if you have a physical copy of God's Word, I would invite you, especially in uh, the next few weeks, to bring it. Uh, we're going to be picking up quite a bit of ground as we follow Paul in Jerusalem, And so there's going to be a lot of scripture that we cover, uh, and so I'm going to be referencing uh, kind of chunks of passages at a time. So it'll be just helpful for you if you have a copy that you can actually look down and follow along with me. Uh, The reason for that is uh, because... Uh, we we value we treasure God's word, uh, and so we're not trying to minimize uh, parts um, over other parts. But uh, Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, he's he's doing something. He's teaching us something, uh, but he's doing that by way of story, by way of narrative, and we we often can get uh, we can miss the the big point that Luke is driving at uh, by focusing on uh, the, the too finely the details. Uh, that's different than how Paul writes, for example. Paul packs uh, a lot of punches in a very short uh, sentence. Luke is, he's doing something a little bit bigger, and so that's gonna be the rationale for kind of covering so much ground. So uh, that's just by way of reminder. um, And um, let me pray uh, and ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Our Father in heaven, we... Thank you for the privilege it is to gather here this morning, Lord, and as Derek has already prayed, Father, this has been, Lord, a heavy week, Lord, for many of us, Lord, we come here with different things that have happened and different burdens that we are carrying and, Lord, we confess our weakness, Lord, we ask that you would Meet us here and now in this place, in your word. And Father, may you make us more like your son, Jesus. May you be glorified in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a man named Raymond Lowell was born in Majorca, Spain, in the year 1232. Raymond Lowell... Uh, came from a fairly prominent family. He had a very good education and he, in fact, became fairly wealthy fairly early on in his life. He had secured a position in the king's court and so he was fairly well off in Spain. However, uh, Lowell was a very worldly man. In addition to being in the king's court, he was also a poet, but he would use... His skills in poetry to help him pursue his worldly ambition. And yet, in God's kindness, about uh, when he was about 30 years old, God saved Raymond Lowell. And so he went from living a life full of worldly pursuits, worldly pleasures, to devoting himself wholly to the service of the Lord. He entered uh, a monastic order. He became a Franciscan monk and devoted himself to learning who God was and dedicated himself to serving the Lord for the rest of his life. And Raymond Lowell actually parallels quite nicely the Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul, before God saved him, he was one of the chief persecutors of the church. He's was lifting... Uh, definitely a, a sinful life, pursuing what he thought was the right way, but was in fact a, a way of destruction, and yet God intervened. God rescued the Apostle Paul, and God transformed the Apostle Paul, and what we've seen now is who Paul, who once was a sinner, now who's zealous for God and his glory, who's trusting the Holy Spirit as he's going from place to place, preaching the gospel. And he's doing that, of course, for God's glory. And as we have studied the book of Acts, we've noticed themes that Luke has planted early in his book and that he has developed along the way. And one of those themes, one of those concerns that Luke is dealing with, that he's writing to instruct in is what does a faithful follower of Christ look like? What does a faithful follower of Christ look like? At the time Luke was writing, Christianity was still a new movement within the broader Roman Empire. It was uh, frowned upon, and not long after the book of Acts was written, the Emperor Nero came, and persecution came to Christians. And so Luke is writing To teach and train, how do you be a faithful follower of Christ in that kind of environment? And we see Luke develop this theme even more so this morning as Paul heads to Jerusalem. And as he is arrested, we get a snapshot of what it looks like to be a faithful disciple even in the midst of suffering. And so we'll see that faithful discipleship means at least two things. Trusting in the Holy Spirit and living for God's glory. Trusting in the Holy Spirit and living for God's glory. Those are the two points today. So if you're taking notes, then that will be my outline. Faithful discipleship means trusting the Holy Spirit. And I'm getting this point because that's the answer to an important question that comes from the text. So I'm getting the first point that faithful discipleship means trusting the Holy Spirit by answering the question, does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? So that's the question that we have to answer. Does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? It's a family Sunday, so the kids are with us. And so, kids, maybe you have had this experience. I had it quite often growing up, and in times I actually got in trouble for it. But maybe you've gone to to one parent, and you've asked them one question. And they give you one answer. Like, can I have ice cream? The first parent says, sure, but go ask your other parent. Then you go ask your other parent and you say, can I have ice cream? And they say, no. Well, you've got a yes and you've got a no. That's a contradiction. Both of those things can't be true at the same time. So what do you do? Well, daddy said I could have the ice cream. Or mommy said I could have the ice cream. In moments of confusion, there's, we have a loss of well, what do we do? And so look with me at verse 4. Luke writes in verse 4 that as Paul is continuing journeying from place to place getting closer and closer to Jerusalem he says this and having sought out the disciples we stayed there for seven days and through the spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem So that's the first place now look at verse 11 and this is speaking about the prophet Agabus and Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. I look one more place back with me in chapter 20. We read this last week, verses 22 and 23. And this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Paul says this, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so as we read those three passages, it may seem as if there's a contradiction. In some places, in Acts chapter 20, it seems like the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, go to Jerusalem. And then in other places, in verse 4, in verse 11, it seems as though the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And so we have to ask the question, what's going on here? Is the Holy Spirit contradicting Himself? And this is not a a trivial question. This is not a, a side question. But there's much that hangs in how we answer that question. If the Holy Spirit is sending contradictory messages, then we have cause not to trust the Holy Spirit when He speaks. If the answer is no, the Holy Spirit is not speaking in contradictions, then we have good reason to trust the Holy Spirit in what he says. So in order to answer that question, in order to see that faithful discipleship does in fact mean trusting the Holy Spirit, we've got to do a little bit of work. And again, this is important work. So let's dig in. First, we need to understand... Prophets in the New Testament. Prophet was in office in the New Testament, similar to an apostle or similar to an elder. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul says this, and he, talking about Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. So notice, Paul's saying Christ gave his church different offices, different gifts. And prophets are one of those. Again, in Ephesians, Paul gives us the significance of the prophets and what their job was for the church. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20, That the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus gave his church prophets, gave them apostles and prophets, and together apostles and prophets form the foundation of the church. Christ is the cornerstone. Prophets play a foundational role in the New Testament by communicating God's Word to God's people. Today, we have the New Testament. We're able to open it and read it. But in Paul's day, in in the day of Acts, they didn't have the completed New Testament, but they didn't they were not without God's Word. God was speaking to His people using the apostles and the prophets. And so prophets, they served a temporary but a foundational role in bringing God's revelation to His people. And they were instruments carrying divine revelation. And so when a prophet spoke, they spoke with authority and infallibility. If they did not speak with authority and if their message was prone to error, how could it be the foundation of the church? So that is part of what the New Testament teaches about prophets. But that's not just a New Testament teaching, that stands on the shoulders of the Old Testament. Let me read a passage for us in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. And Moses says this in Deuteronomy 18 verse 18. I will raise up for them, for God's people, a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken So that's the test question. How can we know whether a prophet speaks from the Lord or not? Verse 22 says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So in that rather lengthy passage the instructions to Israel concerning prophets. They were alive in the Old Testament. Prophets, genuine prophets, they speak in the Lord's name. They speak in Yahweh's name. And what they speak, it comes true, and it comes from God. So a true prophet speaks in Yahweh's name. That word comes true And that word is from God. False prophets, on the other hand, they speak presumptuously. They also speak in the name of foreign gods. So there's the contrast between true prophets and false prophets. And there was capital punishment for a false prophet. The Lord cared very much about someone saying, Thus says the Lord. If the Lord did not commission that person to say that, then they were in fact misleading God's people away from Him. The Lord took that very seriously in the Old Testament. So that as we think about prophets, we can think that when the prophet speaks, God speaks. This is exactly what 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 16 says. For context, 1 Kings 17 is where Elijah uh, is instructed by God to go to a widow's house because the Lord would feed her. And so Elijah meets the widow and asks the widow to to make him some bread. And she says, sir, I I don't have any bread. I've barely got enough flour for my son and myself. So thank you. But I I've got to make sure my boy and I don't die. I can't make you bread. And Elijah tells her that the Lord will make sure her food does not run out. And then in verse 16, this is what is recorded. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord, that he spoke by Elijah that's the part that's important in the Bible when a prophet speaks it is the Lord himself speaking to his people and so that is important Old Testament important New Testament background for prophets so now we can come back to Acts chapter 21 and ask the question what's going on in these prophecies so let's look at them again We'll look first at verse 11. Look how Agabus begins. He says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Again, that is strikingly similar to what the prophets in the Old Testament say when they say, for thus says the Lord. Agabus is clearly communicating a word from God. And he says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that, verse 11, is clearly a prophecy from the Lord concerning Paul and what awaits him in Jerusalem. And then back in chapter 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders and We don't get the same introduction, so it's a little less clear if this is a prophecy, but given everything that Paul says in the speech to the Ephesian elders, I I think we can understand Paul to be speaking with a measure of of certainty about what the Spirit is, in fact, communicating. Paul says that he's constrained, or your Bible might have a footnote and says uh, another way to translate that would be bound by. Paul is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And the only thing that Paul knows is that the Holy Spirit testifies to him that imprisonment and afflictions await him. And then let's go back to verse 4 in chapter 21. Verse 11 I think is fairly clear what Paul's saying back in chapter 20. I think is fairly clear. But we come now to verse four. And the second half begins, and through the spirit. And so these disciples at Tyre are speaking through the Spirit. And so we have to ask the question: what are they saying? And I think there are two options that they might be saying. The first option, as they are speaking through the Spirit, is that the Spirit is saying, Do not go. Or the other option is that the Holy Spirit is saying, You will suffer greatly in Jerusalem. Paul, you will suffer greatly in Jerusalem. Those are the two options. In verse 4, either the Holy Spirit is saying through the disciples at Tyre, do not go, or they're saying, if you go, affliction will certainly await you. And so I think to answer that question, which of the two options is going on in verse 4, I think we need to consider the rest of the context so does Luke present verse 4 as standing in, in opposition or in difference to what he said back in chapter 20 and what he says in verse 11? Or is it similar in content, just shorter in communication? Again, I think it is I think it makes more sense to see verse 4 as standing in continuity with what he says in chapter 20 and what he says in chapter 21, verse 11. That the disciples, through the Spirit, are in fact telling Paul that danger and affliction await you in Jerusalem. And again, I think that is further confirmed by the response that we see in all three situations. All three situations respond with negative responses from Paul's friends. And so at the end of chapter 20, verse 38, after Paul has given one of the most encouraging, hope-filled speeches in the book of Acts verse 38, the Ephesian elders being sorrowful. Most of all because of the word that he had spoken. They were sorrowful. And yet Paul had just spent all this time trying to prepare them, trying to encourage them, trying to build them up. And yet they're sorrowful. And then in verse 12, after hearing Agabus' prophecy... Verse 12 says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him, Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. So in chapter 20, Paul tells them that the the spirit is leading him to Jerusalem and in affliction and imprisonment await him. And the disciples are sorrowful. And then in verse 11, Agabus gives his prophecy. And then in verse 12, they then urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem so I think you see the same thing happening in verse 4. That through the Spirit, they're telling Paul what awaits him in Jerusalem, and then they urge him not to go. Again, if Luke is presenting verse 4 as a different prophecy, the Holy Spirit, Paul, is, is telling you not to go, and then this verse stands out like a sore thumb with what Luke has just told us in chapter 20. And then Luke gives us no explanation of that difference. We're left to try to pick up the pieces and figure out how do we make sense of this. But if it is the same prophecy with the same negative human response to it, then we have no contradiction and we have no conflict And I think Luke confirms that that is, in fact, the case. The Spirit was clear in the message that he spoke. The conclusions drawn from that were consistent but not faithful. Paul concluded that he should go, and that was the right interpretation. But his friends heard about the danger that awaited him And they said, no, 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 that that must not be right. Don't go. So therefore, when Paul refuses to heed their warnings, Paul is not refusing the Spirit. He's not refusing the Holy Spirit leading him. And in verse 33 I think Luke tells us that what Agabus prophesied did in fact come true. And what the Holy Spirit pressed upon Paul in chapter 20 did in fact come true. Then the tribune came up and arrested him in order to him to be bound with two chains. So Paul is indeed bound in Jerusalem as the Spirit predicted. And so the problem in this story is is not with the Holy Spirit. It's with the human interpretation of what the Spirit had communicated. And so faithful discipleship means for us that we trust in God's Word, even if it doesn't make complete sense to us. For those of you sports fans, you'll understand this analogy. In football, many coordinators, many uh, coaches who call the plays, they actually sit up in the press box and they, they do that because that gives them full vision of the field. They're not their vision, their thought process, it's not obstructed by all of the excitement and commotion that goes on on the actual field. Their vision's clear, and so they can see things that players can't see. They can see the substitutions that are being made, and they know that when certain personnel are in the game, the team likes to do these certain things. And so, the coordinators call plays based on their clearer vision and their clearer knowledge than the players on the field. And there are times that a a coach will call a play, and a player will be like, "Seriously, what, coach? What are you thinking, coach? That's not the play we should run." Like this is the play that we should run. And in that moment where there's conflict between what the coach says and what the player thinks should be done, being a faithful teammate means not trusting your wisdom, but trusting in the coach's wisdom. Trusting that his wisdom is greater than yours and his knowledge is greater than yours. And faithful discipleship for us means that We trust God's word. We trust what the Holy Spirit has given to us in his word. And so the message of the Holy Spirit was clear. The problem is they they didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that their friend, whom they loved, was going to suffer. And we can understand that. We can sympathize with that. Even today in our world, the temptation remains. Did God really say that? It's a temptation in the garden. Did God really say that? Again, our problem today is not with the clarity of what God has said, but often it, when it demands something of us, when it Rips the idols that we're clutching onto. We say, "Ah, I don't like that." Maybe that's not really what God meant when He said that. And we find ourselves in the situation in Acts. God has spoken clearly, even though we might not like the clarity of that. But we need to remember that as we're reading the Bible. We're not reading a book filled with contradictions. And if there appear to be places where these pieces aren't just fitting together, we respond with faith, trusting that God is wiser than we are. His ways are not our ways. His wisdom is not our wisdom. He sees the whole picture. We see not even a quarter of the picture. And so we trust what God has written, even in the midst of a changing culture. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing is faithful discipleship means living for God's glory. You see this in verse 13. After they have urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, Paul answers, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. Notice how he ends that. Paul's not interested in death for the sake of death. He's not crazy. For the name of the Lord Jesus. For the name of the Lord Jesus. That's another way of saying for God's glory. I'm ready to even sacrifice my own life if it means that God would be glorified in Jerusalem. And we saw last week how Paul is able to make that statement because he doesn't value his life as precious, but he values Jesus as precious. Paul's concern is not with his safety or his friends. His concern is with the glory of God. And it's at this point that Luke presents us with a number of parallels between Paul and Jesus. And these parallels are intentional Because both Paul and Jesus set their face towards Jerusalem, knowing that when they entered into Jerusalem, suffering would await them. So, Luke is giving us a picture of what faithful discipleship looks like, even when it's costly. So, I want to highlight some of those parallels for us. The first parallel between Paul and Jesus is the parallel of the prophecy of arrest. Again, we've already spent a lot of time looking at those prophecies concerning Paul, so I won't restate those, but Jesus in the Gospel of Luke predicts his own death three times. Twice in Luke chapter 9 and then once in Luke 18. In Luke 9, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. A climax in the book of Luke. And then A few verses later, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. And the other two prophecies that Jesus predicts follow very similarly to that. Jesus predicted his own death and these prophets predicted Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem. Both Paul and Jesus had protest from their friends. Even in verse 12, Luke includes himself. He says, "We urged him." Luke who has been a, a faithful companion of Paul, a faithful ministry partner who probably has more insight into Paul's mind than, than others. Even Luke is saying, "Hey, Paul, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think you need to go to Jerusalem." And again, in Matthew chapter 16, after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus tells his disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem and I've got to die. And Peter says this, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Both Paul and Jesus received protests of their obedience to the Lord from dear friends. And yet both Paul and Jesus cried out, Let the will of the Lord be done. And verse 14 of Acts chapter 21, and since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And then in Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Both Paul and Jesus, their final cry was, let the will of the Lord be done. And both were falsely arrested. We see in verse 17, Paul makes it to Jerusalem. And as he enters the city, he has a meeting with James and the leaders of the church there, and they hear about what God had been doing amongst the Gentiles. They praise God. They rejoice in that, but they tell Paul, hey, Paul, you remember those Jews in Acts chapter 15 that gave you a hard time at the council? Well, those Jews have, have multiplied, and they're, they're zealous still for the law. And they've, they've heard that you tell Jews living in Gentile cities that they don't have to obey the law. They don't have to circumcise their children. And so Paul, they're they're not going to like you being here in this city. And so they devise a plan. They tell Paul, take these four men who are under a a Nazarite vow, an expression of Jewish piety. They say, take these men. Their, Their vow is almost complete. You Begin your day of purification, and then when you finish together, go to the temple and pay for them that you might be purified according to Jewish custom. And then you can demonstrate to the Jews that you don't hate the law, you just hate when people use it for salvation, And so Paul agrees to this plan and in verse 27, the Jews falsely begin to arrest Paul. And notice that Luke places that emphasis there for us in verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. Trophimus the Ephesian would have been a Gentile and so the accusation is that Paul brought a Gentile into the Jewish temple court, and they supposed that Paul had brought him. They didn't bother to check whether, in fact, Paul had actually done that. They just assumed, and they brought these false charges against Paul. And Jesus, too, his trial was totally fabricated. In Mark chapter 14, verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. They couldn't agree on what they were going to charge Jesus with. They just made it up. And then finally, both Paul and Jesus heard the jeers of the crowd that says, away with him. In verse 36, the crowd cries out, away with him. And in Luke 23, 18, but they, the crowd, all cried out together, away with this man, away with Jesus. Both Paul and Jesus knew that suffering awaited them in Jerusalem. And yet they went anyway. Only an ultimate concern for God's glory propelled Paul and Jesus to go to Jerusalem knowing what awaited them, knowing that God's glory was better than anything they could fabricate on their own, was better than any kingdom they could build of themselves. The glory of God really was and is the chief end of man. We exist to glorify God, whatever that might mean. And so Raymond Lowell was convinced that God was calling him to share the gospel with Muslims in North Africa. You may be familiar with your history, but in 1230 to 1300, tensions were tight between Christians in the West and Muslims in North Africa. But Lowell was convinced that these people needed to hear the gospel. And so Lowell spent 20 years, 20 years studying theology, Islam, and Arabic so that he could be a faithful witness to the Muslims in North Africa. And so towards the end of his life, he began to make trips And around the age 80, on one of his trips, Lowell was stoned to death by the very Muslims he was seeking to share the gospel with. Think about that. He spent 20 years training and preparation. And as far as we know, he didn't see any Muslims accept his message. The foundation for living for God's glory is is not success, it's not comfort, it's not safety. Faithful discipleship is concerned with the glory of God, and so no matter what the costs involved in living for God's glory, it will pale in comparison to what we stand to gain when we meet Jesus. The Holy Spirit cannot lie; therefore, we we trust His Word. And so when Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, for me to live and to die is gain, we trust that the Holy Spirit spoke those words and cannot lie. So to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. And so we live now in light of what we are hoping for, and that is to be with Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. Father, as he wrote elsewhere, Lord, to, to follow him as he followed Christ. So, Lord, we look not to Paul this morning, but we look to your son, Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to follow Jesus. Father, to be concerned with your glory above all. Lord, we don't desire suffering, but Lord, we want to be faithful even if that is what you call us to. So Lord, equip us. Keep us faithful, we pray. Amen.